Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, and welcome to our Take Control of Your Health podcast, in which we bring you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. This next interview is part of my Best of series, which features some of the most popular interviews with leading health experts. So thank you for listening. Now let's get started with this week's program to help you and your family take control of your health. Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Robin Shutkan, who is a gastroenterologist. That's a doctor who specializes in the gut and is going to help guide us through some of these details. So welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, you are out in the Boston area, the mecca of conventional medicine, and uh, I'm sure people would be interested in understanding how you came to become involved with this area, and then uh, hear your story, because it's typical of many doctors who are open-minded and interested in the truth. which most doctors lose in my experience once they finish getting brainwashed in med school, but you didn't for some reason, because you walked out, it sounds like from reading your book that you walked out brainwashed just as brainwashed as I was, but then evolved and matured in your thinking and then progressed into what you're doing now. So why don't you share your story? So it's definitely a gradual evolution. And I finished medical school, gosh, about 25 years ago in 1991. And at the time, fully, wholeheartedly believed in the marvels of modern medicine and the importance of pharmaceutical intervention whenever possible, as frequently as possible. But my, my aha moment, if you will, was really gradual over a period of several years. So my area of expertise is inflammatory bowel disease. And I trained in New York at Columbia for medical school and residency. And then at Mount Sinai Hospital, where Dr. Burl B. Crone and and others, Dr. Oppenheimer and Dr. Ginsburg, first described Crohn's disease in the 1930s. So I was very sort of immersed in everything about inflammatory bowel disease, not just the treatment, but also the history of the disease. Never once during my training did the even the very idea that you could treat these set of diseases with food as opposed to pharmaceutical intervention ever, ever come up. I mean, this was just sort of magical thinking that this could happen. But when I arrived in, I'm actually in the Washington, D.C. area, when I arrived at Georgetown, joined the faculty in 1997, by virtue of there not being a lot of women on the faculty, in fact, I was the first woman in the gastroenterology faculty, and as you probably know, gastroenterology is a lot of female patients, about 70% of the patients are female so I, I was busy right from the beginning, which was great. Nobody knew if I knew anything, but people heard, oh, there's a woman on faculty. We're going to come and see her. So I started seeing a lot of patients. A lot of them were women. And a lot of them wanted to know, what can I do? What can I eat? Uh, how can I change what I'm doing to feel better? And of course, I had no answers at all for any of these questions. I just had a lot of fancy drugs that I knew a lot about. And so over the course of time, I started really to experiment a little bit, mostly on myself, quite frankly, playing around with different ways of eating and asking the patients. I did a study. There was actually a meeting, a young investigators meeting in Italy in Capri. And at that time, I still qualified as a young investigator. I was still under 35. And I really wanted to go to this meeting. As you know, most of our medical meetings are in Nebraska or, you know, nothing wrong with Nebraska, but this is a meeting in Capri. I really wanted to go. So I decided to do an abstract asking patients about use of alternative and complementary practices to treat their Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. And we did it as an anonymous questionnaire. And I was really surprised to find out that 70% of the patients in my inflammatory bowel disease clinic were using some kind of complementary or alternative technique, sometimes in addition to conventional medicine. And it really was on a sort of don't ask, don't tell policy. And so I started to get interested and I wanted to know what were people doing and was it helping? And it was a wide range of things people were doing, but a lot of it centered around the food they were eating. So over the, over the course of time with having the advantage of these being patients who were in my clinic who trusted me, and I also had the advantage of doing colonoscopy and other procedures on them where I was able to actually look at their digestive tract and assess whether there was healing. So this wasn't just a subjective business of, oh yeah, I feel better. I was actually looking at people's colons and seeing active inflammation heal, ulcers gone, strictures gone, bleeding gone. 
And uh, many of these patients basically had changed their diet. This was a time when the specific carbohydrate diet, which uh, is very similar to the paleo diet, had been popularized by Elaine Gottschall in her book, Breaking the Vicious Cycle. This is a time when this diet was really quite popular in the inflammatory bowel disease world. It still is. And I clearly remember the first patient I sat down with who told me she's a Somebody had been a patient of mine at Georgetown. She had left and gone to New Jersey. It was back a couple years later. She'd had severe Crohn's disease and she came back and was feeling great. And I said to her, what are you doing? And she said, I basically changed my diet. And you know what she told me at the time over a decade ago wasn't anything unusual now. She was eating uh, lean protein, lots of vegetables, some nuts and seeds. But at the time it seemed really sort of, wow, this is really out there. And I remember doing her colonoscopy and seeing her very severe Crohn's healed, and I could not believe it. And I said, I've got to find out more about this. So I think it really was the patients who really caused me to question what we were doing. And I started looking at the drugs we were using and looking at the side effects. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for judicious use of conventional drugs when you don't have lots of other options. But to be recommending and strongly recommending drugs that we know can cause cancer and severe infection and other problems and not having any conversation about this concept of food as medicine, which is so so well proven, particularly in the gastroenterology world, I think that's really medical negligence. So that got me started. And then my own experience with my daughter, Sydney, who was born 11 and a half years ago, and uh, all the medical interventions sort of gone wrong around the circumstances of her birth really caused me to question what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, it's a great backstory. So thank you for sharing it. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious, and we don't spend a lot of time on it, but just curious from your perspective and specialization in inflammatory bowel disease, which from my perspective can almost always be uh, removed or improved considerably, if not cured, with natural therapies, not any drugs, uh, and, unless they're really, they've got their colon removed or something. But I'm wondering from your, why do you think you were so open to those experiences that occurred with your patients when almost all of your colleagues were closed minded and ignored the evidence and the obvious? Uh, possibility that food might have something to do with their illness? You know, it's a fantastic question. And it's one that I ponder literally on a daily basis because I have patients in front of me and they're not only open to this concept, they're anxious for it. They're eager to know more and to learn how to heal themselves more naturally. And physicians are so closed. And I think, so, you know, the, the biggest challenge is always convincing my GI colleagues, convincing them that putting everybody who walks into their office on a proton pump inhibitor is a bad idea, convincing them that inflammatory bowel disease can be improved, healed, sometimes cured with food. And I think the biggest issue is that we have all been indoctrinated in medical school and residency and practice, but we don't realize we're indoctrinated. We're constantly bombarded with evidence. I mean, you think about our national meetings. So I was on the board of one of our large gastroenterological societies for three years. And during that time, I talked to my fellow members of the board about the conflict of interest that it posed to have people speaking at our plenary session at our large international meeting, 25,000 gastroenterologists, and the people up there were absolutely in the pocket of the pharmaceutical industry. These are people receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars in grants from the pharmaceutical companies who have been identified as the key opinion leaders and are up there on the podium to educate all the rest of us. And my colleagues looked at me like I was crazy and said, well, you know, we have that disclosure slide. So you throw up a slide that says you receive funding from, you know, the list of anywhere from two to 20 pharmaceutical companies. And then it's done, right? The conflict is resolved. Now I'm clear and I'm giving you an unbiased talk. So I think when you look at how, you know, it's pretty, it's amazing. And I, I don't know whether the public isn't aware of that or that physicians don't see that that's still somehow really tainted. So if you look at not just what happens in medical school, residency, fellowship, but if you look at how most physicians receive most of their ongoing continual medical education, it's really through these kinds of conferences. And they have people up there who are not just respected, but exalted in the medical community 
who are telling you that this is a way to go and this is a drug to use. And it is completely supported by the pharmaceutical industry. They may as well have a little tag, you know, a little, a, a little label on their suit from the pharmaceutical industry, the way the reps do. But what's or the, the, or, the rate, or the race drivers. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Sponsored by, but they, they don't realize that they are in the pocket. They really think that they are somehow providing you unbiased information. And I, I say that because I was one of those people. I used to do a ton of speaking for pharma as a, you know, and it's very, it is very intoxicating when somebody comes up to you and says, doctor, you know, you've done such great work and we follow your work and we'd love to have you speak. Physician. So when somebody tells that they want you to speak as an expert and you're a key opinion leader and all the ego stroke that goes into that, you, you want to believe. And so it went for me in the beginning when I was doing a lot of inflammatory bowel disease teaching, it went from, we'd love you to give a talk and, uh, you know, one of these national conferences and here are some additional slides prepared by our scientific board that you can use to supplement your talk. You can sort of use them or not. And then it went to, well, this is our slide deck that we've prepared that our scientific team, it's really the marketing team as we know, but it's always, you know, the scientific team has prepared that we'd like you to use. Um, and you can add or subtract. And then it went to, this is our deck. You have to use the entire thing. You can't make any changes. And when it got to that point for me, I said, you know, I'm done. I, I'm not a pharmaceutical representative. I'm a physician who is here to educate other physicians, but it got to the point where I, it was, you know, I was just doing marketing. And then you but weren't think, spon sponsored anymore. Exactly. That, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I was bought. So I, I just couldn't do it. And I felt like, first of all, this information is readily available to the public and to physicians. As you know, when there's some breakthrough study, it's everywhere, right? So my colleagues definitely have access to it. So what I'm really doing is I'm using my reputation, connections to convince people to use these drugs. And I got to the point where I myself was not convinced. And I, I sat there and I said, I am not going to recommend a drug to someone that I myself wouldn't take and that I wouldn't give to a member of my family. And you know, for a lot of these drugs, it, it's not that I would never take the drug, but I would only take it if there were no other option. And I felt it was irresponsible of me to not learn what those other options are and to not offer them to patients. So it, it really, for me, what changed it, and you mentioned this at the beginning of the program, you said a lot of physicians who have uh, opened their eyes, if you will, to see what is beyond conventional medicine have had some sort of personal experience too. And for me, it really was the birth of my daughter and that whole experience with the epidural, the C-section, her getting intravenous antibiotics the moment she was born, not because she was sick, but just in case, because I had the flu and a fever, ending up in the NICU, and then that really being the beginning of a long series of antibiotics every month and illness, and she was really fully in the clutches of this medicate, get sick, medicate more, get sick some more, medicate some more, get even sicker. And I realized that if I didn't do something, she was going to be really sick. She was going to end up with a serious, serious autoimmune disease. After 16 rounds of antibiotics before the age of two, I'm not sure that that is still not something that, that could happen. It's such a similar story to the patients I see in my practice with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, who often were C-section babies, not breastfed, multiple rounds of antibiotics. I always ask about tonsillectomy because, as you know, it's a marker for a ton of antibiotics. Nobody whips out a kid's tonsils without first treating them again and again and again with antibiotics. So tonsillectomy, then years of antibiotics for cystic acne, and then ultimately Crohn's disease in my office in their 20s. And it is such a predictable path. And I saw her heading down that road and I said, I really have to do something. And if we literally don't stop going to this pediatrician, this is what's going to happen. And it's, you know, it's sad to me as a practicing physician, I'm proud to be a doctor, but it's, it's sometimes hard to hold your head up these days because in my office, most of what I spend my time doing is trying to undo medical mischief. Well-meaning physicians who either are not well-informed or just have tunnel vision, dermatologists 
putting young people on literally years of potent antibiotics. And when you consider the fact that five days to a week of a broad spectrum antibiotic of the kind that dermatologists use or that internists use for urinary tract infections, sinus infections, five to seven days of an antibiotic like that can remove a third of your gut bacteria. And I think about teenagers on you know, a year of doxycycline, followed by a year of tetracycline, followed by a year of something else. We are creating disease. Yes, and yes. I, I don't know how to change it. Well, this is part of the process by educating people and, and having an informed public that can make uh, wise decisions that in, in fact go into their doctor's office and request this type of uh, approach and if yes. not finding a new physician. So uh, we could literally go on for hours because you have such a wealth of information. You may need to get you back here, but I really want to hit the highlights. And we did with your, your story. So I, I'm great because Sydney's experience and that for those who don't know what NICU is or the NICU you is the neonatal intensive care unit. And it's this, this risk factor, which we've mentioned many times, that one of the worst things you can do during pregnancy or after the pregnancy is to have administer antibiotics. And it just devastates your microbiome. So that's the first message. And probably the, maybe one of the single most important messages is to stay away from antibiotics unless your life depends on them. I mean, you really need to. And don't take them frivolously because they yes, are- I couldn't agree more. They are so potently devastating to your health. And, and you don't see it initially. You don't see it initially. And, and uh, you know, if we have time, we can go into some of the ways that you can compensate for it if you have to take it for whatever reason, but you've got to replenish and there's a lot of variety. Of ways. You know, it's all about healing the microbiome. And we've actually interviewed Dr. Nat Natasha Campbell McBride, who I'm sure you're familiar with. And, yes, and absolutely. she focuses on that a lot. And that's a big risk factor, as is taking birth control pills or hormone treatments, you know, which again, alter the microflora. So I'm wondering uh, if you could focus on uh, a few other areas, but, but it, and I want to leave at least a half hour of time for I think was one of the most brilliant parts of your book, which is phenomenal. And, and the name of your book is? The Microbiome Solution. Microbiome Solution. It's available pretty much everywhere. And the, uh, what I really enjoyed most about it, I have never seen anywhere in all my readings, and it may exist, but I doubt that it does, a finer description of the fecal microbiome transplant, FMTs, and even instructions on how to do it yourself. I mean, if you choose that route. So, I mean, it's just magnificent. It, it is just, I mean, you should get the book just for that. And I, that's why I want to spend a lot of time with it because I think you are the world-class expert in that. Thank uh, you so much. And doing it. And, and it's not something that we, that we, let me give you my perspective. I don't think most people need it, but there Absolutely. are certainly a subpopulation that does. And my, my version of a fecal microbiome transplant is not to do transplant at all. It's just to sort of regrow your own. So why don't Absolutely. you give us your perspective on that? And then we, but I, I still want to get back to the inflammatory bowel disease because that's your other area of expertise. Sure. So I spend most of my time convincing people they don't need a stool transplant like you. That's really for extreme cases. They've definitely been sort of buckets of disease. Inflammatory bowel disease is one of them. There've been studies that show that FMT, fecal microbiota transplant, stool transplant can be helpful. But the average person who comes in who has a lot of complaints, who's experiencing brain fog and fatigue and maybe has some joint pain and unexplained hives and, and so on, and some other signs of dysbiosis of altered gut bacteria, doesn't need a stool transplant. And what they really need is what you're advocating, which is to radically change your diet and change your lifestyle throughout the triclosan. Antibiotics, as I like to say, only if death is imminent. And I, I'll tell you, one of the most popular parts of the book is a rewilding approach to illness. And I talk about D-mannose for urinary tract infections. And where did I learn about D-mannose for urinary tract infections? From your site. The first place, the first place I saw it. And I, I lifted it from your site and put it in my book, I have to tell you, the oh, D-mannose. And, you know, women are so surprised to hear that they're not going to drop dead from a urinary tract infection. And, you know, in medical school, that's what you think, right? If you have a urinary tract infection, you could get pyelonephritis. It could affect your kidneys. This could be really serious. Well, most women do just fine. You know, D-mannose works great against E. coli just as well as the antibiotics. And it is now thrilling to me when women come in and say, I'm feeling great with a D-mannose. I use topical. We do all kinds of innovative things. We use 
probiotics in a topical form mixed with coconut oil for bacterial vaginosis for women. It works great. And it gets them out of that cycle of metronidazole and more metronidazole and more metronidazole and then yeast infections and they feel worse. So uh, that is, is an important part of, you know, informing people and really giving them the tools to understand how their body works and how they can heal it. So again, so FMT in severe circumstances, but what I try to get people to understand is that it is a risk benefit equation and that there are a lot of things in stool that you don't want in your body. Stool is waste matter. It's a way for the body to get rid of toxins and other things. So there are viral particles and not all bacteria is good and different things, some things that we haven't even yet been able to identify in stool that our body is eliminating. And so to take all of that without being a little more uh, careful about what we're taking uh, is not always a good idea. So if you have a lot to gain, if you have refractory inflammatory bowel disease and you are not getting better and you've even failed conventional medication, that's something that you might consider. But you know, if you're feeling tired, you have a little brain fog, you're, you're bloated, I don't think it's a good idea. So it's really important for people to understand that the stool transplant is only as good as a donor's stool. I love my husband very much, but he grew up in the South playing football and eating a Burger King every day after practice. So I don't want his stool because it's really probably not robust enough uh, growing up eating a standard American diet and taking the usual complement of medications. So I've always said, if I ever develop a severe autoimmune disease, and I hope that never happens, and I am failing the sort of typical options, I'm heading to Tanzania to get some stool from the Hasda tribe or down to the Amazon. I want some high octane stool. So people who, again, have eaten a diet that's not high in green leafy vegetables, who have taken a lot of medications, not just antibiotics, but non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, birth control pills, steroids, hormone replacement therapy, chemotherapy, so many of these drugs really affect the microbiome and change gut flora. Acid-suppressing drugs, proton pump inhibitors, we know from a study last year that 20% of the bacteria in the microbiome are changed from long-term use of acid-suppressing drugs like proton pump inhibitors. And the authors of that study concluded that proton pump inhibitor use was just as dangerous as antibiotic use in the long term. So you know, people pop those things like, like candy. They take them all the time. And doctors, gastroenterologists put people on long-term acid suppression for years without even thinking about it, without thinking about it. So when you contemplate donor stool, it's not just a matter of excluding serious infectious diseases like HIV or syphilis or hepatitis. It's really about evaluating how robust is the microbiome of this person? And is it going to be able to help me? So I think the future of fecal transplant, because even for me as a gastroenterologist who spends her days wading around in people's colons and sort of knee deep in stool, I am really scatological and unflappable when it comes to sort of gross stuff. But even for me, the idea that you're going to sort of assimilate into your body somebody else's stool, you know, it's, it's not super appealing. So I think part of the future of stool transplant is going to be identifying within all of us, what are our healthy microbes? Can we remove them from the body and amplify them in some way outside of the body and store them so that if something happens and we have to be on an antibiotic or we have a severe viral illness and our microbiome is depleted, we can then have access to them. And I think techniques looking at that sort of amplification of our own healthy microbes and reintroduction. But in the meantime, there's a tremendous amount that can be done with diet. And uh, one well, of my we, favorite- Well, before we go to the diet, because we could spend three or four hours on that. I yes. just wanted to, there's a few questions I wanted to comment on. Uh, one, and I, I couldn't agree more with the identification. I think it's gonna happen this decade because the, the cost of, of sequencing the human genome is going to be down to probably a penny in the next five years. It really is. It's going to be, it'll be given away for free. And they, we can clearly do the quantitative and analysis of every microbe in your gut, I mean, your stool. So we'll identify the path, uh, the, the beneficials of healthy populations and figure it out. I, I think that's very close. But in the meantime, I'm wondering if you have this, 
person, this Western individual who has consumed the standard American diet for most of his life, three, four, five decades, six decades. Do you think it's possible? I, I think I believe it's possible, but I don't know. You're the expert and you know, you've certainly got loads more experience to radically, I mean, if a person's consuming the ideal diet, which you're about to go in to discuss, do you think it's possible that they could shift those microbes into near close to the Tasmanian or is it because of all the exposure to the toxins and the drugs, they are irreparably damaged? I think it is absolutely possible. Absolutely. And to me, it is the most exciting thing and this incredibly optimistic message for where we are in medicine today. Because unlike our genes, whereas as my daughter says, you get what you get and you don't get upset, right? That's sort of it. Even though not really, because we know that genes change all the time. And what turns different genes on and off? Microbes. But yeah, the, it's not that the, the genes change, the expression of the genes changes. Exactly. So, but our genes are more static. Our microbes are changing all the time. The microbes that I woke up with this morning are not going to be the same ones that I go to bed with tonight. And so this is incredibly exciting, this idea that we can change it. Now, there are people that I see who have, it's usually not so much a diet. If you've been eating the standard American diet for decades, there's still a lot of optimism that it can change, but it's the people who have had decades of potent antibiotic use and other drugs that are really difficult and might have some degree of sort of cellular microbial damage that's really difficult to shift. It becomes almost like what things look like post chemo, right? So the point of chemotherapy is to sort of kill everything and then hope that something survives and can, can, can struggle and, and make it and still stay alive, which is why we see so many secondary cancers and other problems after chemo because you've been poisoned. So it's the same thing with a lot of these antibiotics. And there's some people who just can't fully recover from that. But for most people who have eaten poorly, taken some drugs, there is incredible opportunity for recovery. But it really has to be meaningful change. The idea that you can continue to eat potato chips and soda and uh, you know, not eat vegetables and just take a fancy probiotic and get better is really magical thinking. So I really try to stress in my practice that it's not the microbes that you put in your body, it's what you feed those microbes. And uh, I had a conversation with Elaine Ingham, a soil scientist, sure, a couple I, months I've, ago. I've interviewed Elaine before. Yeah, so she talked about the importance of the soil that the food is grown in. So you might think, okay, I'm doing well, I'm eating vegetables. But if you're eating vegetables that are grown in some kind of factory somewhere and that aren't grown in nutrient-rich soil that hasn't been manipulated to kill all the microbes, again, you're still not going to really hit that target of improving your microbiome. So it goes so many steps back. And of course, like most things in life, it goes back to the earth and the soil. Yes, indeed. Now, uh, I want to take off on a point that you mentioned earlier with respect to avoiding antibiotics, especially around the time of uh, barren, barren childbirth. So uh, another thing to avoid uh, is what you had, which is a C-section. And uh, sometimes it's just not possible because you don't understand it's not possible or for a variety of legitimate medical reasons. So it, do it doesn't necessarily doom you and you outline some strategies to implement if you do have a C-section. So if you can review that now, I think it might help a lot of people. So I completely agree. Sometimes a C-section is necessary. Sometimes it can be life-saving for the baby, for the mother. But I find it hard to believe that a third to a quarter of women in the U.S. who are having C-sections <laughs> medically need them. This is about commerce. This is about convenience. This is about a lot of other things beyond the health of the mother or the baby. And the first thing, and I outlined this in the birth plan in my book, which you know my OBGYN friends are really annoyed at me over this birth plan, but I, I felt, again, <laughs> I had a responsibility to do it. And quite frankly, I wish I had had this birth plan when I was giving birth. I wish I had known this stuff. It really is the biggest regret of my life that I didn't know this stuff 11 years ago, but be that as it may. The first thing is to try and avoid a C-section whenever possible. And you really have to push because again, your physician is very well-meaning, but they have been trained and indoctrinated to think that a C-section is fine. So you might find yourself in the unusual position of having to educate your physician about the risks of C-section. And there's plenty of good information out there to do that. So the first thing is to try and avoid it. If you have to have a C-section, I love the information that uh, Dr. Gloria Domingo Bellas, 
provides or this whole concept of vaginal seeding. And I say in the birth plan very clearly, make sure your doctor and, and their team know about this. Because if you start doing this and people don't know what you're doing, they're going to call security on you and take the baby away. But the idea is, I love it because it's so low tech, it's so common sense, it's so brilliant, which is to take a, a, a gauze pad and soak it in the juices, what we call the perennial juices, so that area between the vagina and the rectum. Soak it in those juices, and there are plenty of those juices happening during childbirth. And then when the baby's born via C-section, instead of essentially disinfecting them with antibacterial products like they do in the hospital, to take this vaginal pad that's soaked in all this wonderful flora from the mother and wipe the baby down, especially the head, the eyes, the mouth, all of that, and wipe them down so that you are sort of approximating a C-section. And when I first read about this, I thought well, this you're is fantastic. A, va a vaginal birth. A vaginal birth, yes. Right. Yeah, that, it is brilliant and low tech. And yeah. vaginal, how big is this vaginal pad? It's, I mean, you would want a fairly significant one, not like a two by two gauze pad, right? Well, if, or if that's, if you had a two by two gauze pad, you could use a couple of them to do this. I mean, this is done very quickly. This doesn't take a lot of time. But the important thing is to let the folks know who are, you know, the nurses, the doctors, et cetera, the, the midwife, the doula, whoever's doing the delivery, that you don't want the baby wiped down with all this chemical stuff. You know, we're using this iodine-based stuff and things with bacterial, antibacterial properties, alcohol. And what you're doing is you're removing the few microbes that the C-section baby has. So we want to do the opposite. And I think that can go a long way. And then the importance of nursing. So back to the C-section just for a minute. The studies show that babies born vaginally are colonized with bifidobacteria and lactobacillus and all the other health, healthy species from the mother's microbiome. C-section babies are colonized mostly with hospital-acquired staff. And that really is as bad as it sounds. And what's really astounding is that the difference can follow that baby for years. So if we look at rates of allergy and asthma and obesity and autoimmune diseases, we see higher rates of all of those conditions in C-section babies. So it's not just the immediate complications around birth of bleeding and infection and so on. It really is your baby's risk for obesity, allergies, asthma, autoimmune diseases, and lots of other things that's affected by a C-section. So being able to intervene early on with this very low-tech, inexpensive technique of the vaginal seeding, I think is really brilliant. And I look forward to more studies down the road showing the, the impact of that. The other thing we have to be aware of is the importance of breastfeeding. And I'm not proud to admit that when I was in medical school and the La Leche folks used to come around and talk about this, I thought, ah, oh, who are these crazy people talking about nursing? And it's so important. I really had no appreciation for the importance of that until really decades later. One of the common ingredients in breast milk, in fact, the third most common ingredient in breast milk is something called HMOs, human milk oligosaccharides. And it is completely indigestible by babies. So why is the third most ingredient in breast milk something that babies can't even digest? It's because it's not there to feed the baby. It's there to feed the baby's bacteria. The HMOs in breast milk feed the baby's burgeoning microbiome and then help the baby to be able to repel staph and other potentially harmful things on the mother's nipple. So it's this great example of the synergy between what's going on on the mother's side and what's going on on the baby's side and how it's all supposed to work together. So that's yes, another critical thing for people to know. And uh, <clears throat> well, you're if you happen to have a C-section, you're swabbing your baby with your vaginal perineal perineal secretions to pop repopulate actually the beneficial bacteria. The other thing you want to be careful of, and what I was really impressed with in your book, and, and it happens so rarely, is that you want to avoid the hepatitis B vaccination because there's absolutely no need justification virtually anyone unless the person's a hepatitis B carrier and even then that's yes. questionable which you can easily screen for before you deliver so and and you, you know it's I find it very rare and extraordinary for a conventionally trained physician to make the progression to understand that I mean it, it, and you know they've truly made the complete transition once they reach that level and you have <laughs> because you're you you know you you were clearly under, understand the truth about this so uh you know my own my first nephew i think from my well my sister's uh who is actually is a chief editor for our site her first child i mean she, we, she knew about this too and she 
uh, he has a, he's actually in college now, but uh, told the, the staff that they didn't want to do vaccinations, but he still got a hepatitis B on day one. And he had some challenges and re- that, was, that he was, uh, suffered as a result. So you've got to be diligent, do your homework before, not that day. So. And it's amazing how much stuff gets done to you in the hospital you don't know about. I mean, most women don't know that they get antibiotics for a C-section. They're unaware of it until, you know, if they request their discharge summary and see it. I didn't know that my daughter got not one, but two potent antibiotics intravenously in the NICU. You know, you kind of sign a general consent for treatment and you make this crucial mistake. You know, the doctors are well-meaning, you know, they're vested in a good outcome for the health of your child, but you make the crucial mistake of thinking that they know and completely understand the ramifications of what they're doing. And it's clear that we don't. And so you have to be very aware of that. And I keep telling people, people want to know, well, why did my doctor do this? Why did my doctor treat me with six months of antibiotics for Lyme disease that I didn't have or put me on acid suppressing drugs for three years or whatever else they did? And I explain to people, your doctor, for the most part, most of the ones I've met and the ones I work with are lovely, well-meaning people, but they are not well-informed and they are getting their medical information from sources that compel them to keep practicing this way. You had mentioned previously the importance of avoiding antibiotics, but why don't you take a few moments and discuss the hidden antibiotics? Because you do this very well. There's so few books where I read. I think there's only one point that, that I was that I partially disagreed with, and it, you know, but that's very, very rare. I mean, you're just so spot on, and you cover the hidden antibiotics really well. So that would be the triclosan, which you mentioned. So even the FDA and conventional medicine understands that now. They're going. I think it's banned. Finally. If I'm not mistaken. Yes, as of September. Yeah. It yeah, won't take so, effect till 2017, but yeah. Yeah, so uh, that one's gone. We don't have to worry about. It. They'll put some other substitute that'll take another 10 years to figure out. It's Although it's still in toothpaste, so they said triclosan. <laughs> We don't see any added benefits, so we're going to insist that it be removed from personal care products, from your lotions and shampoos and so on. But you can still keep it in toothpaste and ingest it. Yeah. But the other common ones would be your drinking water with chlorine, which kills benef- you know, pathogenic microbes, thank God. And then the ones hidden in uh, most factory farm food. So and why don't you dress those and any others and put your frame on it? So 80% of all the antibiotics sold in the U.S. are actually used in the food industry, animal industry primarily. And so you can be really judicious about saying no to antibiotics and suffering through your sinus infection and using some DMATOs for your urinary tract infection and going to bed rather than the doctor when you have the flu. But you can still be ingesting a ton of antibiotics through food, factory farm food. So I think this is an area where it's really important to buy organic and to really know, again, not just what you're eating, but what the food you're eating has eaten and tracing it all the way back because 80%, that's an astounding number. And you know, we already have the highest per capita consumption of antibiotics in the world. India has the highest consumption overall, but per capita, we're number one. So we're already taking in a lot of antibiotics just in a pure form of antibiotics. But then when you think of the fact that 80% of the antibiotic sold are being used in the animal industry, and you think from infancy, the average American child will take somewhere around 18 to 20 courses of antibiotics by their 18th birthday prescribed. And then you add to that how many courses of antibiotics they're probably ingesting with food. It's really astounding. You know, where, where it's almost like this... Uh, you know, myth of Sisyphus, we're on this treadmill from the minute we're born, and one could argue even before birth with an in utero exposure, we are in this sort of incredible downward spiral to just destroying our microbiome. And you have to be so vigilant about all of these things. Yes, indeed. So I'm wondering, I'd like to go back on your specialty, which is inflammatory bowel disease, and just clarify for the many lay people in the audience who may not understand the difference between that and and irritable bowel syndrome or IBS and inflammatory bowel disease IBD. So irritable bowel syndrome is a functional disease. You know, it can be painful and disabling, but it's not going to kill you. Whereas uh, IBD frequently is given very toxic drugs and and frequently receive surgery. So it's a, and can kill you. So it's a bad autoimmune disease that really needs aggressive intervention. So I'd, I'd like to hear your protocol for that, that expands upon this, but I, initially I'd like to comment, your comment or experience, I guess, with the administration, not necessarily of vitamin D, but 
vitamin D in its optimal form. Now, Washington is a little bit better than Boston because it's further south. And most of your patients, I don't know if they're local or if they fly in to see you from all over the country, probably fly in with your reputation. But do you encourage them to get their vitamin D naturally as opposed to for orally? And if you do, do you notice a difference in those who actually apply that to the other ones? Because I think there's a serious difference between someone who has a, a therapeutic vitamin D level, which is probably somewhere between 40 and 60, from those who do it naturally without taking oral supplementation from those who actually get it through, well, actually, yeah, without natural supplementation from the sun, from those who get it from swallowing pills. Yeah, we definitely pay attention to vitamin D and, and other things too. So for example, our Crohn's patients, we really pay attention to vitamin B12 because often the ileum, the end part of the small intestine is inflamed or has been surgically removed and they have difficulty absorbing vitamin B12. So in patients with inflammatory bowel disease where either because of surgical removal or active inflammation, the, the GI tract, as you know, is very specialized in terms of what gets absorbed where. So they can have low levels. If you have Crohn's disease and the upper part of the small intestine is involved, you can have malabsorption of fat soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K, magnesium, iron, different things. So vitamin D has definitely been shown in many studies to be important for inflammation in general and certainly patients with inflammatory bowel disease. So it's one of the first things that we check and make sure that people are adequately supplemented. And it really depends. So we have people who we put on high dose supplementation, prescription dose, 50,000 international units a week, or sometimes even twice a week if they're low, if they're down in the single digits, versus somebody who we would say 2,000 IUs a day is fine for you or 4,000 IUs a day is fine for you. I recommend getting 20 minutes of sun exposure, upper body, arm, shoulders, sun exposure without sunscreen a day. I know that's controversial in the dermatological world, oh, but <laughs> absolutely. to but, say the least. But, but I, I'm glad you recommend that. And actually, I think that may, that recommendation probably needs to be modified because it might be 10 minutes during the day yes, in the summer sure. and it might be two hours in the winter. Uh, so, uh, but having made that recommendation, do you actually inquire in your follow-ups as, as to how successful they've been able to apply that? And if you have, do you know, have you noticed the difference between those who do that? It's a really intriguing question, and I have to say it's an area I'm clearly falling down in because uh, we pay careful attention to the vitamin D levels, but I have mm -hmm. to say we haven't spent a lot of time differentiating between the folks who are getting it from sun exposure versus supplementation, but it's a, you know, I think it's an important question. It, it is. And difference, it, it, yeah. And it's, yeah, I think you, you don't have to worry about the dermatologists because they are beyond completely ignorant in this area, but there's just little <laughs> question in my mind with my new passion is photobiology. And I would encourage you to consider studying this because I think you're going to find a pretty dramatic difference. And I can pretty confident no one's looked at it. But if it's successful in inflammatory, inflammatory bowel disease, I'm sure it's, it's going to be equally useful in all the other autoimmune diseases. So it would be an important contribution to the literature. And I'd be glad to have you on to review those results because I think it could really open the eyes of a lot of people. So uh, consider that and uh, provide us with some other uh, pearls. And, and I just want to actually comment on your book a little bit at this time. I mention this frequently, but books are so incredible. I mean, they're the most amazing value you can get. And I'm just finishing my next book. It's going to be out next year. And there's people, most people have no idea the amount of time that goes into that. Not only to write the book, but the years of clinical experience and the pearls that you acquired over decades. And then you condense it into a book and people can get that and pay. It's almost free. And you get this incredible insight and knowledge that is, is uh, not available pretty much, you know, the, the value is incredible. And now you have to be careful because not all books are created equal. And, but yours is the one that qualifies as, you know, you're a true expert, authentic, and you, there's so much wisdom in the book. So it's such a great value. And when you find good ones that someone you'd know and trust recommends, you should put it, if you have the time to read, I would definitely Make, you know, purchase those and, and, and read it and acquire the knowledge and then listen to interviews like this. Thank you so much. And I have to say, I couldn't not write that book when I really realized what was happening and what we collectively in the medical community were doing uh, in our valiant efforts to improve health, the ways that we were actually 
worsening people's health, contributing to creating diseases, I really felt compelled to write it. And I think for me, the, the moment when I said, okay, I have to sort of put this down and, and make it available to people was when I saw the results of a meta-analysis that had come out from Mount Sinai Hospital, the very place I had done my GI training, looking at over 7,000 patients with inflammatory bowel disease and identifying frequent antibiotic use, particularly in childhood, as one of the main risk factors for developing IBD, I said, gosh, people have to know this. And so I couldn't agree with you more. It's, um, I'm reading some terrific books right now. And I, one that I read recently, I actually emailed the author. She's a pediatric neurologist. The book is The Dirt Cure. I had to give her a little shout out. And I said, this is so fantastic. And this is so important for people to know. I want everybody raising a child to know about this. And I feel the same way about Elaine Ingham's work. I feel the same way about your work. But as an author, it is also an incredible privilege to be able to put your nickel down. And as you know, it's scary sometimes, right? People come after you. We know who they are. It's incredibly, uh, it's an incredible opportunity to be able to put your nickel down and say, this is what I think. This is what I believe in. And I feel an obligation to share it with you, but it's also scary. I had a lot of conversations with the legal department at Penguin about what I could or couldn't say or should or shouldn't say. And it's scary because you know that there's an incredible amount of money being made from some of these companies. And when you say something that's critical, you know, their goal is to crush you. And they've done it very effectively for a lot of people we know. So it's scary, but I get to the point where you feel like you cannot legitimately not share this information with people. And as you know, book, books are not a way to get rich, right? You know, no, nobody no. typically, books are probably at best a break-even proposition or you lose money writing a book yeah, you, when you think about the amount of time Because your time is more valuable than, right. It just, you, right. by per hour basis, you're definitely way below what your normal income is. But, but it is an incredible way to take this information out of the office, out of the realm of, you know, one practitioner to one patient and really get into the hands of millions of people. And that's a wonderful privilege. So I'm glad everybody should keep on writing books and we should all keep on reading them. Well, you have to be discriminatory or dis discriminate. Discriminate would be the actually the word I was searching for, uh, because there are a lot of wannabe books. Who, and, and I can tell you, I've read uh, for every good one like yours I read, I read 10 that aren't so good and just basically have people who've copied it and not innovative and, and using the brain God gave them to not only just take facts, but to apply them and then modify and innovate based on your feedback that your that you and your feedback your, your patients are giving you so uh and you've done that i mean it's 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 unusual to find someone to, that does this and as i said earlier it's a you know you you've broken the mold i mean you broke through the brainwashing essentially what there was and the propaganda that's carefully orchestrated by these corporate interests that it's been going on for well over a century and, and and it's been incredibly successful they've captured the minds of all those who can most of those who control the profession the leaders and the respected leaders and essentially created the standard of care which if you violate you're at risk but fortunately mm -hmm. through people like yourself and in our if more people understand it then that then that standard starts to change and i remember when, uh, this was actually you graduated in 91 medical 91 school. from med school yeah yeah so this uh, my experience was in 1980 or maybe 82 where i i had read uh, barry marshall's paper uh in lancet Which when it was first because yeah, I, I read lancet every week and uh well at that point it was it was it was karate bacterium Coronibacterium, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's what they get renamed H. pylori like in the later in the, on. The, yes, that's yeah. exactly right. So, uh, but anyway, I started to apply that, you know, for the, the people to uh, as, a, as a treatment option. I didn't understand because I would use antibiotics to treat it, which I would never do now. But I was getting results, but I got criticized by the heads of gastroenterology. They came down and kind of like whacked me around mentally and like, what do you think you're doing? And, and interestingly, 15 years later, he wants up getting the Nobel Prize for it. So you just have to know the truth. And, you, you know, I just am so appreciative that there's physicians like yourself who get it and you know really are able to change their course and break through the mold of the, of the propaganda that's being fed to them in med school 
Thank you so much. You, I don't know if we have time for it, but you'd asked me earlier about a uh, little bit more specifics about the approach to IBD. Oh, yes, absolutely. Through a microbial That's... lens, and I'd love to just spend a yeah, minute yeah. on that. Yeah, no, 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 more than a minute, because I think it's, you know, that is your specialty. That's what you spent the last few decades of your life doing, and you've got incredible uh, uh, in pearls of information that you've captured from a natural perspective. Not, you know, we're not hearing from a gastroenterologist who's going to be putting people on these uh, really potent autoimmune uh, drugs. So immune destroying drugs, I should say. So why don't you share that with us? So nothing gets me more excited than getting a patient with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis off of their uh, immune modifying agent. We won't have to name the drugs, but we, we all know what they are. And you see the drugs on TV and then, you know, you hear the, the fast chatter about may cause cancer, tuberculosis, serious infection, death. Uh, so getting a patient off of those drugs is really such a passion of mine and it can be done frequently. We have a success rate of about 77%. So almost three, well, actually a little higher than three quarters for being able to get people off of conventional medicine and using just food as medicine. And I'll tell you how we do it. So the first thing we do is we really get a good sense of what the degree of inflammation is. And the, the group that we have the hardest time with are patients with Crohn's who have what we call fibrostenotic disease, where there's a lot of scarring and narrowing in the GI tract. And really because sometimes that has been going on for so long that it's irreversible and we can't get the GI tract to open up again. So that's probably our most challenging group. But people with colitis who have a lot of ulceration in the colon and people who have Crohn's who don't have a lot of scarring but have active ulceration, we are generally able to treat that very successfully. So we get a good sense of what the baseline is, a good lay of the land, how much of the colon is involved, is a small intestine also involved, is higher up in the GI tract also involved. Then we look at uh, any nutrient deficiencies. We check vitamin D and B12, ferritin, fat-soluble vitamins, et cetera. So we sort of see where the person is nutritionally, and we see what we can replete. And then we really work on the diet. And I use a combination that is part specific carbohydrate diet, part paleo, part vegan. In the book, I call it the Valio diet, a vegan paleo. Mark Hyman calls it pagan, pagan uh, paleo-vegan. I like the Valio because it focuses a little bit more on the vegan. But what we found, we actually published this data three years ago. We presented it at one of our main GI meetings, Digestive Disease Week. And in that study, it was a small pilot study. We looked at about 12 patients. I think they were nine with Crohn's, three with ulcerative colitis. And we looked retrospectively at the diet and we found some interesting things. We found that the average time for the diet to work was about 90 days. And when I say to work, to really kick in to the point where people felt like they were in remission. But some people noticed results in as quickly as two to three days and other people took several months. But 90 days was kind of the sweet spot. Two thirds of patients were able to get off their medication or significantly reduce their medication. And again, the majority of people, when we looked endoscopically, had healing of the inflammation. But this is a most important part of the study. People, everybody took out the processed carbohydrates. Everybody was off gluten, off refined sugar, et cetera. So essentially grain-free for the most part. As people get better, we do add in some brown rice and legumes and so on. But for the most part, that's what people, it was looking like a standard paleo diet. But there were two distinct groups, a group who got better and a group who didn't, despite excluding all the not so great stuff. And what was the difference? The difference was the amount of vegetables people were consuming. So the people who took out the gluten and the processed sugar, so they took out their pizza and their chips and they substituted meat for that without increasing their vegetable intake did not tend to do a lot better. The people who really ramped up their consumption of green leafy vegetables, and particularly the stringy vegetables like celery and asparagus and artichokes that are high in inulin that really feed gut bacteria, really did significantly better. And so we realize it's not enough to tell people to remove certain things. It's what you replace it with that's really important. And I think that's true across the board. Terry Walls in her book, The Walls Protocol, talks about this in her MS patients, reaching that critical mass. I think for her, it was somewhere around six to nine servings of green leafy vegetables a day. So there is that critical number that you have to get to 
to really see meaningful change. And we've definitely seen this in our autoimmune patients with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. I'm a big fan of the green smoothie because truth be told, I'm not a great natural vegetable eater. I mean, I love a good salad, but it's hard to really get in this amount uh, for every meal. So I make up a big green smoothie in the morning. It's got four greens in it, spinach, kale, celery, and parsley. It's got green apple and a peeled lemon, and it's got fresh peeled ginger, a lot of ice and water. And I have two or three, sometimes four glasses of that, and I really feel such a tremendous difference. But for, again, patients who are dealing with real disease, it's hard sometimes to get in that amount, that sort of significant nutrient density. So getting it in in a blended form in the morning, so you sort of have a head start, we find very useful. I had an internist visiting with me in the office a month or two ago, an internist from Northern Virginia, a really good guy who's transitioning to more functional medicine practice. And he wanted to spend a day with us. And at the end of the day, I said to him, I said, you thought you were coming here to see this sort of, you know, new age, exciting stuff. And basically, I've spent my whole day telling people how to make green smoothies, right? Pretty innovative. And so we had a good chuckle over that. But sometimes that's what it boils down to. You know, sometimes Well, it's it, it is innovative mindful. because, well, how many other gastroenterologists are doing <laughs> it? Not many. There are some. And, and I, it, we've sort of reached the end of our time for discussion because I said we can go on for many hours. But I, I'm wondering if we could... There, if we could focus, just comment on how your approach has been, uh, how your local colleagues responded to your approach. Have they chastised you? Are you winning them over? Are you seeing their patients? Are they coming themselves or are they avoiding you like the plague? Uh, from my colleagues at Georgetown, it's been very good. It's sort of peaceful coexistence. And I think it's been good because I was full-time faculty there for almost nine years before I opened my practice. So. These are people who know me well. Many of them I've trained. They were fellows under me. And so there's a mutual respect there. And what I've seen is that they're starting to change a little bit. I was invited to speak at our conference this April, the Georgetown GI conference. They dedicated a whole afternoon session to the microbiome. I spoke. I invited my colleague, Jerry Mullen from Hopkins, who's also an integrative gastroenterologist, to speak. And one of my colleagues at Georgetown, Dr. Mark Matar, he's the main person who does fecal transplants at Georgetown. So we had a whole afternoon session. I was invited by my chairman, who's a pancreaticobiliary, therapeutic endoscopist, doesn't know much about the microbiome, but he was very open to it. So I've seen uh, an openness, an interest, and they certainly refer patients to me, and I refer patients to them. Somebody needs an endoscopic ultrasound. My chairman, Dr. Haddad, is a person. He sees patients in his practice and will say, you know, I think Dr. Chutkin could help you. So it's been nice. It's been, uh, again, mutual respect and sort of peaceful coexistence. The GI yeah. community at large, not so much. Um, I, I think <laughs> I've, been out, I've been outspoken about the drugs, the uh, immune modifying drugs and the proton pump inhibitors, but I've also been outspoken about the amount of colonoscopy, unnecessary colonoscopy that's done. And the fact that that's how most gastroenterologists now make their living. And it's one thing to go chasing colon cancer, even when you know ahead of time it's not going to be there. But it's a thing to also neglect other GI conditions, functional bowel disorders and so on, because you're spending all your time doing colonoscopy and you're having you know, some other person in your office with much less medical training actually take care of the patients. I've been very critical about that. And so that's been a little less well-received. But I still remain optimistic. I think most doctors want good things for their patients. They are conflicted. They don't know they're conflicted. It's like Harriet Tubman said, I saved thousands of slaves and I would save, have saved thousands more if only they had realized they were enslaved. So I think physicians don't know that the wool has been pulled over their eyes. They don't know that they are essentially working to market drugs for pharmaceutical companies, some effective, some not so effective almost all with side effects that people would like to avoid. And so I think as most gastroenterologists, it's so important for the patients to not just abandon their doctors. You know, if you have a doctor and you have a decent relationship with them, but they're still hell bent on prescribing an antibiotic you don't need, I think it's so important to say to them, you know, this is why I don't want to take the antibiotic and here's a book you should read because that's what people did with me. People trusted me. They felt that I had their best interests at heart and they took the time to educate me. And I'm so glad that they did. So I think that we have to bring a colleague along. We have to bring our physicians along 
and not just abandon them entirely. Yeah, th thank you for that. Such an eloquent explanation of that process. I don't think I've heard a better one. Uh, it really articulates what the primary problem is. And I think a subset of that is just typical human behavior because most people, non-physicians don't understand or realize that uh, physicians are compensated for mostly for procedures. And yes. gastroenter gastroenterologists are one of the higher compensated medical professionals because they do so many procedures. And that's where they make most, most of their income. They don't make money by telling you to make a green smoothie. Not at they, all. They lose money. Yeah, <laughs> they lose money, just like you yeah. do. So, you know, and we see it so consistently, especially like in the, the agricultural area where agricultural scientists who really understand the dangers of DMO, GMOs are basically uh, kicked out of their universities. They lose their positions and their funding because they're funded by the, the, the uh, essentially Monsanto or Bayer now. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so I have great kudos to you for the courage and to stick to the truth and to avoid the uh, endorsements for the pharmaceutical company because you 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 saw the experience you tried it and it didn't work and you know you, you know and you really truly want to help people and you do so with the book so one of those books that you can bring your physician if he wants to prescribe antibiotics is your book the microbiome solution and it really would open the eyes uh, and as you can see dr chuckin is really incredibly articulate and the book is just is a great representation she actually wrote the book you know she wasn't ghostwritten she wrote Every it and word. It's, yeah. <laughs> english so, major in college but before we sign off i do have to say that i was emboldened by practitioners like you who have been doing this for a very long time play such an important role and uh this education of the public and you know you have been you have been criticized by conventional medicine and by pharmaceutical companies and it really emboldens those of us who have our eyes open to say, you know what, I am going to speak the truth. I'm going to educate patients. I'm going to try and bring a few colleagues along and I'm going to be okay. So thank you so much for that. Well, you're, you're most welcome. I'm just, uh, it heart gives me great pleasure to know that, that there's individuals like you who are taking up the, uh, the baton and, and spreading the word because I, I, I think we're going to see this massive uh, explosion of the truth being spread, and and, it's, and uh, ultimately the the emperor has, people are going to more people are going to stand. The emperor has no clothes, and it's just it's yes. just all big propaganda scheme uh, it's scam. Yeah. So thanks for what you're doing, and uh, really appreciate it. And get that book because it's a great value and loads of information that'll help you and your family and your friends and those you love.